The scripture reading for this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 19 through 31. Listen for the word of God. The angel of God who was going before the Israelite army moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on the right and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in a pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them and against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch your hand over the sea, so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched his hand out over the sea, and at dawn the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on the the right and on the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, as we turn to this story today, may its beauty and its power and its terror and its questions lead us to think. And as we think, help it lead us to deeper faith in you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 
So in last Sunday's sermon, I gave a tribute to the Mississippi River and how in the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, the river is for Huck the source of his great moral passion. And therefore, in the words of T.S. Eliot, a strong brown God. Eliot described the river as almost forgotten by dwellers in the cities, but waiting, watching, and waiting. But in addition to these appealing adjectives, Eliot also uses more foreboding descriptors of the river. Implacable. Keeping his seasons and rages. Destroyer. Reminder of what men choose to forget. These haunting words characterize any river, any body of water, any aspect of nature whose gentle beauty can become destructive. We have seen such destructiveness the past three weeks, seen at least from the distance of observation. Are there any two more salt-of-the-earth names than Harvey and Irma? And yet, the saltiness of the destruction of the hurricanes they named was not lost, but overwhelmed with fury. Over the past week on the staff, we have tried to think and contact every person in our congregation that we know to have parents or children or siblings or homes in Florida or Houston. The list has grown to probably more than 20, and we've received answers from everyone that we sought to contact. While some were were forced to evacuate, to our knowledge, all are safe, and only a handful have significant property damage. During this same time, I have been trying since late August to reach a congregation in Houston where I served as pastor from 1984, I mean, yeah, from 1984 to 1990. I no longer have emails or phone numbers from the few members that I know are still there. Messages I sent or left the first couple of weeks went either undelivered or unacknowledged. This past Friday, however, I uncovered a Twitter account the current associate pastor maintains. So I was able to go back and follow the congregation's plight over the last three weeks. August 28th, we continue to pray for everyone as we continue to see rain falling. The church is holding off well and has not been flooded Some of our members are at church and we're opening up to folks whose homes are being flooded. If you need to get out, I know Rolando Moreno is on a boat out helping people. If you need him, here is his cell phone. The next day, August 29th, 7.11 a.m., the church is without power and in need of a generator. Please contact us if you have one. An hour later, generator apparently secured. A current list of needs for the church shelter. Deodorant, diapers, cat food, cat litter, and an air mattress pump. 
And then 20 minutes later, shoes, shoes, shoes. Does anybody have old shoes they can donate? August 31st. We're winding down operations at the shelter. All of our guests will have found homes. We've now closed our shelter. No worship this Sunday, September 3rd. Mayor Turner has issued a mandatory evacuation for the area around the church. Please leave the area. Then nothing for a week. Then September 7th. Just in our church family alone, the number of families who've been flooded has risen to 16. We'll do our best to have a normal service on Sunday, but we know it won't be normal for most. And then a post this Friday. The water has finally gone down. We finally begin our church year. We're starting Sunday afternoon youth group this Sunday. With all that's going on, our youth need time to be with, us, with each other and with God. Huck's River, Elliot Strong, Brown, God, implacable and raging, once again, watching and waiting. In this week's Old Testament lesson, which Casey had re has read well and Whitney has brought out to the children, the waters rage as the people of Israel cross the Red Sea to freedom and as members of the Egyptian army lose their lives. It is a famous story. Many of you have heard it before. It happens four to five hundred years after God has called Abraham and Sarah with a promise of land, descendants, and blessing. The people of Israel have spent four hundred years in slavery. Their conditions have worsened under the Egyptian Pharaoh. They cry out to God. God hears their cries and raises up Moses to lead them from slavery to freedom. After an accelerating series of plagues on the Egyptians, to try to persuade the Egyptian Pharaoh to let God's people go, God instructs Moses to lead the Israelites by a circuitous route to the edge of the Red Sea to be prepared to cross it. The people of Israel fear the Egyptians. They fear the sea. They fear that God is leading them to their deaths. But they follow. The passage that we read contains the actual crossing of the Red Sea in successive order, as Casey said, the angel of the Lord that leads the people of God by day withdraws to the rear, joining the pillar of cloud that leads them by night. And so the angel and cloud are here. The people of Israel are here. The sea is here and the Egyptians are back here. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea. The Israelites enter the sea at night. We think on dry land that has emerged. The Egyptians pursue them. Hours of darkness passes and the narrator goes silent. 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Stormy, windy, warlike. 
At daybreak, God sows sows confusion among the Egyptians. Wheels come off their chariots and their chariots get stuck in the mud. The Egyptians turn and flee. God tells Moses again to stretch out his hand over the sea. Moses obeys again. The waters fall back into place, submerging the fleeing Egyptian army. As the Israelites emerge from the waters, they see the bodies of their pursuers slain on the seashore. And they fear the Lord. And they believe in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. There's two aspects of this story I want to talk about today that are both challenging. One of them has to do with when the land appears. The other has to do with the end I just read. As Jewish scholars have read this story for centuries, some of them have depicted the crossing of the Red Sea by the people of Israel as what we would call a cakewalk. They depict, as we heard, the walls of water up on the side They say those walls of water are like mirrors and the people of Israel walked through the walls of water picking fruits and goodies to eat along the way. It's actually in some of the old Midrash. But most Jewish scholars don't describe it that way. In fact, there is a fierce debate among Jewish scholars that has gone on for centuries as to the timing of when the Israelites enter the water versus when the dry land appears. The debate is fueled by word order in sentences and by sentence placement within the story. One verse reads, reads, the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground. Leading to the possibility that the Israelites were already in the sea before the dry land appeared. A later verse reads, the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea. Not necessarily contradicting the first verse, but certainly implying that the first step they took was onto dry ground. A verse in the next chapter reads, When the horses of Pharaoh went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters. Implying that the waters were not parted until the Egyptians entered the sea, which is before which is after the Israelites because they were in pursuit. An ancient writer says, the sea was not split for the Israelites until the waters came up to their nostrils. I love that image. It's scary, but I love it. Until the waters came up to their eyeballs. To their nostrils. A contemporary writer stresses that when the Israelites enter the water, they do not know that they're going to be rescued. 
They do not know that they're going to reach freedom. They take a genuine leap of faith. The miracle happened only after they had committed themselves entirely to God. On the threshold of death, they experience almost viscerally a restoration to life as the waters surge apart to either side of them. Each step they take is a miracle of salvation. Now, it is virtually impossible to tell what happened because it goes back and forth. It's ambiguous. But as you might imagine, I am intrigued by the possibility, the possibility that the Israelites actually entered the waters of the sea before the dry land appears. Although I must admit that entering a sea on a lot of dry land would be very frightening to me. But the point is this. Dry land or no dry land, the people of Israel take an enormous leap of faith. Each step they take is a miracle. My friends, most of us know that any major decision we take, any major step that we take in our lives, by its very nature, calls forth a certain leap of faith. Be we a nation, a community, an organization, a business, a church, or an individual, making a major decision by its very nature, involves a leap of faith. It is often during the proverbial dark and stormy night that we make such decisions, that we take such leaps. The night in which the soul is tested. The night in which the heart is scorched or drenched or both. The night in which we cannot clearly distinguish between who our friends are and who our enemies are as we thrash around in darkness and wind. The land isn't beneath our feet. The waters haven't coalesced into a wall on the side. There is no fruit hanging. And we do not know if our next breath is going to be filled with water or with air. But each second that we remain afloat, each minute that we are able to hang on, gives us an opportunity for hope. The new drug comes onto the market. The new surgical technique is developed. A diagnosis emerges, providing us with an explanation with treatment options, which, however overwhelming, serve at least as a wall by which we can navigate our way forward. Every step we take brings a moment of life. An initial, adjustment, an initial adjustment which makes our marriage better can lead to another and then another. We take one small step towards compromise 
in politics and international affairs at work. And that step leads to another and becomes one giant leap for humanity. To enter stormy waters by definition involves a leap of faith, but so does staying on dry land. Every step we take towards resolution, towards healing, towards salvation is a miracle. Now the second aspect of this episode both attracts and troubles me. And I think it attracts me precisely because it troubles me. This aspect, and I'm not the only one troubled by it, is the death of every Egyptian who serves in the army against the Israelites. A death in which God plays a direct hand. Now what I'm going to say has its limits, but I do ask you to follow me along with it. While Pharaoh is depicted as one of the cruelest and most incompetent rulers in the Bible, as we read the story, we the readers see little if any difference between the Egyptian people and the Israelite people. Egyptians and Israelites alike are dependent on and impacted by the quality and character of their respective leaders, Pharaoh and Moses. In other words, as readers, we are given no real reason to despise the Egyptian citizens. It is their leader who rightly draws our ire. At the end of our passage, when the Israelites emerge from the Red Sea, the first thing the narrator says is that the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Drenched and exhausted from their own all-night brush with death, the Israelites saw the great work that the Lord had done against the Egyptians. Now while we have varying degrees of discomfort and varying degrees of even being offended with the idea that God would wipe out an entire army of his opponents, it might be a bit surprising to us that the Israelites who come through the waters and see the bodies do not immediately break out into celebration and song. They will do that in the next chapter. But their initial reaction is silence. Perhaps even reverence. One year when I was in seminary, I served as a campus minister at the University of Tennessee Medical School. And I was told by another campus minister that one of the things she did early in the semester 
was that when all of the first-year medical students were taken down into what was then called the gross anatomy lab, and they were given the cadaver on which they would work for the two or three years of medical school. And she said she always went down with them because the experience of these highly motivated, achievement-oriented, smart students going into this lab for the first time was an experience of silence for them. To see even all these covered bodies that had been donated to science filling the room. It's that kind of silence and reverence that I think is the Israelites' initial reaction to what they see. In their silence, they have come to realize that their God has the power to rescue them after 400 years of slavery. They have come to realize that God has the power to keep them alive in and through raging waters. They have come to realize that God has the power to bring their pursuers to death. And I think by implication, they come to realize that God has the power over their own lives as well. In the years and the generations to come, as Moses leads the people of Israel through the wilderness to the edge of the promised land, he will twice refer to the diseases of Egypt. And he will be doing that with a tone of warning to the Israelites. The diseases of Egypt is a phrase that refers to the ten plagues that have beset Pharaoh and the Israelites in an attempt to get Pharaoh to let them go. Moses is warning his own people that in the power of God, these diseases could strike them as well. I think when the Israelites see the Egyptians slain on the seashore, see them within touching distance, perhaps they are moved to whisper to themselves, there but for the grace of God go I. As you likely know, I'm not much on talking about the judgment or threat of God. But it is in this passage. Yet the way it emerges is as something of an equalizer. The silent sight on the part of those who survived the crossing of the sea help transcends this split between Israelite and Egyptian between us and them. It, help, it helps remind us that we are all ultimately equal. During the Boer War, Thomas Hardy wrote, Quaint and curious war is, you shoot a fellow down, you treat if met where any bar is, or help to half a crown. 
Humility in the face of the power of God. Humility in the face of the power of life and death makes thin the line between us and them. Makes thin. There but for the grace of God go I. And such remembrance, such humility becomes ours. We will do well. Amen.